everybody. Welcome to episode nine of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Grand Prix DC finalist, Collins Mullen. Hey, hey Collins. my title changed a little bit. Yeah, yeah, a little different. <laughs> no longer a GP top 11-er. Uh, yeah, top 11-er doesn't sound nearly as good. We've, we've upped that up just a little bit. Yeah, they don't give you a plaque for that either, so. Yeah! <laughs> oh, man. For those of you unaware, I made finals of the Grand Prix this past weekend, just a couple days ago, um, in DC standard format, I was playing Green White Ramp, which I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot about. Yeah, I, I mean, like huge congratulations for that. I know at this point, I kind of felt like it was just a matter of time. You've been working really hard. Like this is the main thing you're doing. I know you test pretty much every day, so right. Yeah, uh, you're going to get there, but it's <laughs> it's nice to get there. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are telling me that, and I guess all I can say is thanks for believing in me. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, you know, I've been testing really hard. I played the deck that I talked about last week on the podcast. Kudos to everybody listening. You, you probably had a little a little uh, sneak peek there. Um, but yeah, pretty much went with my gut on which deck I thought was going to be the best. Uh, definitely focused in on specifically good sideboard strategies for the most popular matchups. And honestly, I think that the sideboard strategies that I came up with for that deck were kind of the reason that I did so well at this tournament. I definitely was able to kind of outplan and juke some people, specifically on Teamer, Teamer Energy, which was like the kind of the level one most obvious deck going into this tournament. Um, did very well, a couple copies in top eight, I think. And I played against it a lot at this tournament. And I, I think that my plan in that matchup in particular was very, very good. And I think I attribute that to the reason that I had so much success. And you didn't lose to Teamer at all on the weekend, right? No, I think I played it. So I played it four times on day one. And then day two, I played it at least three times. So and then once in the quarterfinals. So half half of day two. Yeah, pretty much pretty much half over half of the tournament I was playing against Teamer. Yep. And I just felt like that match was great and I was very well set up for it. Yeah, didn't lose, didn't really feel like any of the matches were very close. I definitely <laughs> I definitely punted one pretty hard, punted a game. I didn't get punished because I was able to win game three, but I just had like a hundred percent line at one point and then like slammed into a negate that I pro- knew that he had and was playing around up oh, until no. the last turn. <laughs> that's kind of the key to the matchup is managing those negates, right? And that's what your right. sideboard strategy rotated around. Yeah, I mean, if we want to go ahead and jump right into that, it seems like that's kind of the story of your tournament. So yeah. we probably should. So essentially, playing green white ramp, no approaches. I think there might have been some confusion on that in the tournament. There were no approach to the second sons of my deck. I was just ramping into World Breakers and Ulamogs. Essentially, the ramp main deck was pretty stock. Had two walking ballistas. I know some lists have played four in the past. That card just kind of felt pretty medium to me, so I wanted to trim down on the numbers, and I wanted to put in more World Breakers. Because World Breaker is kind of the mirror breaker a little bit. If you're playing a ramp mirror, you want to be casting World Breaker first. Because you can hit their land that has an enchantment on it. Because you can hit their land that has an enchantment on it. And I found that in the mirror, whoever resolves the first World Breaker just wins. Yep. Like, I I wish there was a little more to it than that. (laughs) And I did play one mirror game three. I was just, you know, I played the first World Breaker and I hit my opponent's land that had an enchantment on it. And that's just too much. Yep. You know, uh, now I'm on seven going to eight and you're on like four again or something ridiculous. Yeah. So right. The, so the main deck was pretty stock and the biggest thing and the thing that I actually didn't have kind of finalized up until maybe Friday night was my sideboard. Mm-hmm. I was pretty sure kind of what I wanted. I really liked Regal Caracol. I think I started off playing two Regal Caracols in the sideboard because it was just really good against Mono Red. And I felt like Mono Red was such a bad matchup that I maybe wanted to up those numbers a little bit. Sure. So I started playing more and more Caracols and just kind of discovered that that card just wins the game on its own. Especially if you're playing like two in a game. Like if you play one and then go into your next turn and play another one, then you can just attack for 10 lifelink the next turn. Right. It's just very ridiculous. I, I feel like everybody needs to reread the card when you tell them that not only do the tokens have lifelink, but it, the cat also gives other cats life, like so. Your yes, first right. Miracle. Yeah, people. So. Yeah, people had to read that card a lot over the weekend. Where 
people were confused about like whether or not the cat itself had lifelink and then I played another cat and then they gave each other lifelink and made each other bigger. I was very happy with my decision to go up to four of those. Okay. Um, and I think that played a big role in my sideboard plans there because initially that card I viewed as a card that I really wanted against mono red. Like that's like my saving grace against mono red. It's like, okay, I can slam these like really powerful cards that are going to gain me a bunch of life like Linvala and Caracol and stuff. So, like, I'm really leaning on those in that matchup. And I felt like Mono Red, at least game one, is just easily the worst matchup that I could have. Um, you often don't do anything until turn three. It's a very fast deck, and they've got reach, and I'm not doing anything. Like, I don't have any two-drops, really, in my deck, unless you count the two Walking Blisses. So I can just really easily get run over. So I need my sideboard plan to be really strong in that matchup. Sure. So four Authority of the Consoles, four... Uh, Regal Caracals. And then how does that make the, the games 2 and 3 feel? Do they feel, like, pretty positive? What I came up with for my plan post-board in the red matchup is that I actually ended up cutting all of the Ulamogs, all of the World Breakers, and all of the Hour of Promise. Okay. I just shaved all of that stuff because the games that I'm winning against red, I'm just kind of, like, taking over with these really powerful life gain cards. Sure. You just don't really need the Ulamog to, like, close the game out. Mm-hmm. So, and it feels weird just, like, stripping the entirety of your top end out in the matchup. But post-board, you kind of become this, like, medium rampy, ramp into real Caracol, Limbala strategy. Sweepers, stuff like that. So you're really trying to clean up the board and then, like, race them with one of these big threats that they can't really answer very well. Sure. So those games, post-board, feel pretty good. And I think that you definitely have to... They have to feel pretty good in order for you to have a chance in that matchup. Because, like, say I'm, like, a 30% dog game one. You know, in order to make up for that, to make the matchup overall good, I have to be, like, a 70% favorite games two and three if I'm yeah. going to get both of them, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I do think that, that the matchup kind of felt fine, but definitely didn't want to play against it a lot. Yeah. Kind of, like, the the most important thing for this this weekend for me was being able to figure out what I wanted to do against the teamer matchup. And you got that so that you actively wanted to play against Teamer sitting down, right? Yes. One of the weird things uh, about my testing process was that I arrived on this deck because I felt like I wanted to play a deck that was good against Teamer. Mm-hmm. And then I started playing this deck on Magic Online, and I was beating everything, but I kept on losing to Teamer, which was like not where I wanted to be. And I was like, man, there's. I just keep on getting negated at like the worst moment, and it's just terrible. And I need to figure something out to make their negate plan really bad. Yep. And I was like, all right, what kind of card can I find that's going to be like proactive in the game plan that I'm trying to enact and isn't a non-creature spell? So right. it's got to be a creature. Because right? you, you still got to be ramping somehow because... Yeah. Your favorite against Teamer because you cast Ulamog eventually. Right. Um, yeah. Ulamog is the card that they are struggling really hard to beat. You know, they do have Confiscation Coup, so they do have outs to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if you're aware of Confiscation Coup, there are definitely things that you can do post-board to play around that. There was a game where I had infinite lands, and my Teamer opponent and I were both top-decking. He wasn't applying any pressure. I had swept his board or something. And we're both top decking, and we're both destroying lands, and he would draw land, play it, and pass. But he always had a card in hand. So then I drew an Ulamog. And he had seven energy and four blue sources. I just said, go. You know? Yep. You're not applying any pressure. I don't have to do anything until, you know, you start doing that. And if I get to the point where, like, I can't beat the um, Confiscation Coup, then, you know, we'll have to play the Ulamog and kill your threat and, and try to just win from there. But I just kept on saying Drago, and I think we, we played Drago for like three more turns until I drew a Sanctum of Ugin. Mm-hmm. And then I played that, played the Ulamog, triggered it, found another Ulamog to kill the Ulamog if he stole it. And then, yeah, as soon as I found the other Ulamog, he just conceded without showing me the Confiscation Coup. But after the match, he was like, or after that game, we were going into game three after that. He's like, after this match, you're going to have to tell me how long you sandbagged the Ulamog for. <laughs> Which led me to believe that he did have the Confiscation Coup. So I needed, I needed to find a strategy that's good against Teamer that doesn't involve casting Hour of Promise or Sweepers or something like that. Or anything that can um, get negated, basically. Yeah. And I, Oblivion Sower was on my radar, but not in the context of the Teamer matchup. I had seen Oblivion Sowers that some people were running, 
and kind of like thought that like oh that's like a good mirror tech i guess mm -hmm. like additional ramp like big ramp pieces or something yeah but i just like didn't realize that that card is just kind of the nuts against teamer it's a big creature five eight that they can't like even their like big cubs aren't really going to be able to tussle with that too much right um unless they have buckets of energy um yeah hydra struggles against it too yeah. And I actually, uh, Friday when I got to the convention center, I ran into a friend of mine, uh, Zach Kine, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Mm -hmm. And we were we just kind of like play tested like against. He was playing mono red, so we play tested a little bit of that. And he just kind of like offhand mentioned, he's like, "Yeah, I think that Oblivion Sowers are really good against Teamer." And I was like, "Hang on, I've been looking for a big card that's not negatable, that's good in the Teamer matchup, and that like progresses my game plan." Mm -hmm. Oblivion Sowers is just the perfect card. Yeah. So I just kind of, like, I trusted my instinct of, like, I knew what I was looking for before, but I didn't, like, make that connection of Oblivion Sower and, like, good card that can't be negated against Teamer. And then, like, as soon as I made that connection off of his suggestion, I was like, all right, this is it. We're doing it. We're going to put four in the deck. And I did. And my board plan against Teamer was I took out all the Hour of Promise and all the World Breakers and, like, one Sweeper and the walking blisses which didn't really do enough mm -hmm. um and i brought in the four regal caracals just like as a big non-negatable huge roadblock four oblivion sowers and the linvala um, right? the linvala which is another non-negatable thing and then the quarantine field because mm -hmm. sometimes chandra kind of gets out of control and you want an answer to that gotcha and i was like right this is what we're doing we're putting in a bunch of these like big creatures to kind of like get around our opponent's negate plan and it just worked like a charm every time it was it like felt kind of surreal where just like i would play against teamer and i would win game one because they didn't have any negates and i could just like sweep them and then we'll mog them yep. and then post board they brought in all these negates and i'm just like casting rule caracals and five eights and then like ramping into Ulamogs like and just like not caring about their negate plan. Like they they never really they're playing creatures on turns two and three, so they don't have the negate up for my like three mana ramp spells. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure that they would negate those anyways. Right. Because um, they're leaning on that negate to win. Because the yeah, they're like really and like this is the play pattern that I saw over and over and over again in my magic online testing, and kind of the reason that I knew that this plan was gonna work so well is yep. that like turn four my opponent would go all right, two drop, two mana up, go. Yep. And I would be like, Regal Caracal in my turn five, like <laughs> which, in my five mana. Which tends out class most uh, two drops, so. And, yeah, and then they're looking at their, like, you know, they've got, like, a 4-4 four, four Lantus Cub now and 3-2 Rogue Refiner, and then I've got a 3-3 three, three, and 2-2 two, two, two Lifelinks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, God forbid I play another one next turn <laughs> or a 5-8 the next turn that ramps me. And then, like, followed up by Ulamog. Yeah, the, the one moment in the tournament that kind of, like, gave me that affirmation of, like, this is a good plan is when my opponent... Like, I've got, like, three five-eights or something ridiculous. <laughs> like, the draw was, like, really good, and I... And he's just, like, really stumbling, and I'm like, what's going on over there? And so... And I've, like, drawn a bunch of Oblivion Sowers, and I've got a bunch of lands. He, like, draws his card, and he sighs, and he plays a Chandra Six... Zeroes it and discards two negates oh, <laughs> and draws cards, three cards. The cards he sideboarded in in that right. matchup. Yeah, <laughs> just like all right, nice negates. <laughs> you know, <laughs> good plan, good plan. I went undefeated against Teamer that tournament and played against it a whole bunch. And I think that you know, there's definitely kind of like the piece that I like figured out or whatever, or like the plan that I figured out or whatever for this tournament. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, I, it anecdotally, it felt like every time I walked over. To see how Collins was doing. <laughs> I see Collins sitting there. His opponent passes the turn with, like, Botanical Sanctum and Forest up. Collins draws his card, plays a land, turns all of his lands sideways, and slams a thing that he knows is resolving. Right. <laughs> like, like, I didn't get to watch that many of Collins' games, but that was most of the games <laughs> that I watched. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt like I was doing something that kind of nobody was prepared for. Yeah. I So I, I went back and I watched some coverage... Uh, of the event, and there's something that Reed Duke commented on. He was talking about like what percentages of um, what's important in Magic. Mm -hmm. I think he was talking about like you know the percentage of your like deck building choice has on your like overall success in Magic. And uh, I think that my like the percentage in my mind of like having a good game plan 
and then being able to enact that game plan and then like knowing your like your your roles and your your approach for a particular matchup i think that the percentage that that makes up in your having success in magic mm-hmm. is way larger than the percentages that i think a lot of magic players are so obsessed with focusing on for example i made a lot of mistakes this tournament uh, just in like the the micro decisions the the decisions that were like very hard to make and you know i like chose one over the over over the other and then kind of like in hindsight knew that that was the wrong thing to do and i i think that that's kind of something that i've always kind of done in magic it's like you know i'm in terms of like technical play, I feel like I'm pretty I'm a pretty tight player. Yep. But I'm definitely gonna make mistakes over the course of the tournament. GP is sixteen rounds. Right. Top yeah. Eight, so. Uh. Yeah. It's you know it's a long tournament and you're you're everybody's human and you're gonna make mistakes. Um. But I think that the reason that I had so much success this tournament is that my plans for sideboarding and just like being able to enact that, I think that I was probably just doing better than anybody else in that tournament. Yeah. The, the one matchup that I didn't really plan too much for was Mardu. <laughs> and, uh, and and the story right. behind that. Is... Yeah, and there was a kind of a funny story where um, I didn't play against Mardu at all day one, but I kind of like saw it a little bit around the top table. So I was mm-hmm. kind of starting to notice that it was it existed. And then the n- Saturday night, my friend Elliot Darrow was like, all right, Collins, what matchup do you want to test tonight before day two? Because I was 8-1 going into day two um, and, you know, feeling pretty good about it. And I was like, I didn't, the Mardu matchup seems really bad. And I don't, I didn't come into this tournament with a plan for it like I did for Monored and Teamer. And it seems to be doing pretty well. And he was like, all right, we're going to test it. So we, that night when we got back to the hotel, Elliot was like, all right, Collins, I'm going to start proxying up some some Mardu decks. And we're going to test. And I was like, I'm just too tired. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd just rather go to bed. So I, I didn't end up testing that matchup. And sure enough, uh, I think my like my first, no, not the first round, but like I definitely played against Mardu in the Swiss twice on day two. Oh, wow. And then again in the finals. I, I kind of think I figured out, like, given the context of the cards that I had, what I needed to do. Yeah. Um, Fumigates were really bad in the matchup, which is a little counterintuitive, and I knew that I needed to bring in the Cats and the Linvalas and stuff like that. But but in terms of, like, deck building, I didn't really have any, like, plans for that. Like, my <laughs> my sideboard was three four-ofs and three one-ofs. Right. Like, I didn't really, you know... It was a pretty focused sideboard on what I expected to face, and yeah. Mardu just wasn't on the list. Once you go four 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 in the yeah. board, you don't have room for Descenders Deliverances anymore. Right, yeah. So so I played against Mardu a couple times, and then <laughs> Elliot just came up to me like after each round that I played, and he was like, we should have tested the Mardu matchup. <laughs> and I was luckily enough, I was able to defeat the two Mardu opponents that I played in the Swiss, I, I honestly don't know how. I, I guess Ulamog's just great. But <laughs> yeah. um, well, Worldbreaker's good against them, too. Yeah, Worldbreaker's good, and I did have a fourth one of those. So, you know, it was, I, I did have, like, game there. But, yeah, definitely in the finals, I felt very outclassed, and I felt like my opponent's plan was just way better than mine, yeah. where he was playing Thought Not Seers in the main deck, which is really not something that I wanted to see, and just an aggressive strategy that was resilient to the kind of ways that I was trying to fight the aggressive strategies. And Max is just a master, so like you know, yeah, how, how are we going to be? He's always him? on the right deck. <laughs> yeah. He's won like fifteen GPs in the past two years. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do want to like comment on the fact that I think that this tournament kind of highlighted the fact that if you want to have success in Magic, you really have to have that kind of plan or just understanding of how each matchup plays out. Um, I think that that's something that Brad Nelson and his brother Corey Bormeister do very well. Yep. Um, is that they they understand that side of Magic so well, and Standard is the one format that you can really kind of lean on that skill a lot. Uh, that, um, that macro... Yeah, the, the kind of the macro strategies of... Sure, you're not going to make every technical decision in the game correctly, yep. but, you know, who does? Uh, like... Um, I just think it's kind of it's kind of impossible to do all those things and uh, and one thing that I noticed about myself as like I tried to get better at magic was that I kept on like beating myself up for all these tiny decisions that I made wrong. I would like really really hone in on this like one pinpoint decision that I made in in the magic tournament uh, or like in it in a game of magic rather um, 
and be like, all right, you know, I need to, I need to like bank this so that I make that right decision next time so that I have like this huge archive of like decisions that I like know how to make now. Yep. And and that's what getting better at magic is. Yeah, I just never missequence my lens this way again. Right, yeah. And I, I think I'm just starting to realize that that's just not as important. Like, it is important, and I think that you will get better at those things just by playing more magic. Mm-hmm. And I think that I definitely have a lot of room to grow there. But I definitely think that the part of magic that I'm going to be more proactively focusing on from now on, and I kind of have been for the last couple of months, I guess, is just really focusing on you know, understanding kind of the more macro elements of, of magic and playing magic, trying to kind of figure out a, a way to position myself in a way that's going to be better than what my opponent's trying to do. Yeah, and I think that that part of it is not something that just comes with time and with playing magic. I think, mm-hmm. like you said, you have to actively focus on that. You're not going right. to... If your sideboarding strategy consists of like, well, I'll put in four cards for this matchup and four cards for this matchup and a couple cards for this matchup, your sideboarding strategy isn't really going to improve over time, mm-hmm. you know, until you start thinking about, okay, so what is my teamer plan? Let's not get negated. How do we not get negated? Right. Yeah. What, what are the things that we can do to, um, you know, put ourselves in a better position overall instead of being like, all right, how do we make each individual micro decision correctly over the course of the game? Yeah. You know, and those things are important, and you have to sequence appropriately, and all these things, and that's why legacy is so hard, is that, like, you know, those micro-decisions have such a higher percentage impact on each individual game. Yeah. But in a format like Standard, I think that it definitely focuses more on that other element of magic. Yeah. That I'm kind of, like, taking a birth into now, I guess, you know. So, yeah, I guess that's my little spiel on that. Cool. Well, I mean, I I agree. I think that's, that's definitely an area where I need to improve, and I think that... Mm-hmm. It's one you have to actively choose to work at rather than, you know, sequencing properly and stuff Yeah, kind of comes with time, and I, I really think this doesn't. Right. Uh, one of the things that I get out of this finish is qualifying for the Pro Tour. Yeah. Um, First one. Yeah. I, you know, I've played Magic competitively for about three years now, I guess, but I never qualified for the Pro Tour before this. And I think part of that was because I did more SCG stuff than anything else. Like, I would do the occasional, like, PTQ or PPTQ when I could, but, you know, I, I never really broke into that before now. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big deal for, like, me taking my next step into the competitive magic scene. Yeah, so um, do we have, do you have any specific goals here? So you're going to be, you're qualified for the second Pro Tour of the season, um, so it's going to be Rivals of Ixalan in Spain. So what do we... Right, what so we I guess of? I've got, I've got, what, nine guaranteed Pro Points so far? Yep, six from this one and then um, the three. So I feel like... You know, bronze is easily obtainable. Yeah. And what it's 20 points for silver? 20 points for silver. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess they, I, I might need to shift focus a little bit on to Grand Prix when I can Yeah. to try to acquire those extra pro points. One, and one of the cool things is that the season after your PT, I believe, is heavy on team GPs because they all qualify for the team pro tour. Right. So you yeah. get to either maybe some Lotus Box teammates will be traveling to some or yeah, some new yeah. friends and that might make it a little a um, little more enticing. Right, for sure. Yeah, and you know, that is definitely something that I enjoy. Team tournaments are great. So, you know, if I can find the right teammates for this, you know, that could be a pretty big pretty big deal. They're they're weird formats though. They're like I mean, some of them are, like, Team Sealed, but some of them are, like, Team Unified Modern and that sort right, of thing. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never really dabbled in Unified Modern. You know, I, I have played in Team Sealed before and had a lot of fun there. Yeah, you know, I'm excited. I've kind of taken a step away from Limited recently. I've been playing so much Constructed, so, you know, the one thing about the Pro Tour that I have kind of in the back of my mind is that I'm going to have to really kind of sharpen up on limited. Yep. But I do want to take this kind of along the same lines of like the game plan approach, the macro approach into limited. I think that in the in my experience for me personally, I've always approached limited in a mac in a micro sense. Which pick is correct here? Like like a pack one pick one mentality kind of like through all of drafting um and i think that i really need to see if i can take a step back and like try to develop some game plans understand archetypes understand how archetypes approach each other and maybe any loopholes that i can sneak into there that kind of like 
macro approach I think that I, I have the potential to bring to, to limited with and mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the best limited players out there already do that is that they just like have that overall understanding of how the games play out and like you know how you can position yourself better instead of making like you know every tiny little decision correctly which is the way I think that I had approached it before and I think that is really the the for the, it is a format you mm-hmm. know it's it's not you know you don't know there's 75 cards after they play their first land like you do in constructed right 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 but you do know you know how well your the you know the the ramp deck splashing three colors you drafted matches up against if somebody drops a turn two spellweaver eternal and the things that are likely in their deck and what are the important things you need to do that game and that's so helpful for like drafting sideboard cards and that sort of thing like I I make sure to draft a couple of frilled sandwallas for the sideboard of my my ramp deck so that I have a relevant turn one play when I'm playing against a deck like that. And, and I'm sure there's lots of things that I could be doing if I was paying more attention and, and understood this current format better. But but that's something that I've only recently started to grasp, sort of the relationship between limited and constructed in that way. Right. Yeah, so, you know, definitely excited for, you know, to kind of, like, take an approach into that. I think that I've, the Pro Tour I'm qualified for is in Spain, which is Rivals yep. of Ixalan. That's right. So, you know, it's a little ways away, and I've got time to kind of, like, <laughs> let let that sink in a little bit. And with the way that they're releasing these sets, I think you'll have significant time to play it on Magic Online before the Pro Tour. Yes, I think that's definitely a, a huge help for me personally. I get a lot of testing in on Magic Online, so... But you may still want to try to get up to draft camp, at least for that. Oh yeah, for that absolutely. Season. Yeah, I think that draft camp is definitely something that I'm going to look into getting to. Awesome. Um, and I think I, you know, I, I think I have enough connections to be able to make that happen. So yeah, it should be good. So those are kind of like my my overall thoughts on the tournament this weekend. I mean, anything you think we can take from this going forward? I mean, yeah, obviously that macro approach is something you want to take going forward. But maybe yeah, just yeah. from this deck, I, I know. Like, we're not going to be casting Ulamogs after this rotation, but maybe, right. maybe like, ramp stuff. I, I, I don't know, you know, what we've learned this weekend besides, like, you know, that, that macro thing we were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the deck was great for this weekend. I don't know how many more standard events there are going to be. I think, is Nationals standard? I'm not entirely sure. Well, Nationals isn't until October, right? Oh, that's right. Okay. So, so that's going to be that's gonna be post-rotation. So yeah, I think that, you know, this was kind of like, I can put this deck on the shelf now after this tournament. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to play it, like at their local tournaments or whatever, I definitely recommend it. I think that this deck was pretty great. It would be interesting to see, now that this is kind of more of a known quantity, where it goes from here. Yeah, I think that Queen White Ramp was kind of like the, the deck that I wanted to be at, at, kind of like the end of this standard format. Yeah. But moving forward, we get to move on to something else. Probably gonna try to play some Hour of Promises in the future, right? Oh man, Hour of Promise is <laughs> bay. <laughs> modern, um, modern, standard, whatever. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's the card I've been casting kind of the most of recently. <laughs> Playing a lot of Hour of Promise in Modern and now in Standard. Gotta love that card. You know, kudos <laughs> to whoever designed that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely a fan. Sometimes it deals 18 damage to your opponent, and sometimes it, you know, puts two zombies into play, but still great. Yep. <laughs> hey man, those zombies block toolcraft exemplars and whatever else they're attacking with, it's fantastic. Yeah, one other thing that I did want to talk a little bit about, kind of more magic theory, I guess. Okay. I guess I've been on a little bit of a magic theory kick recently, yeah. so... And it was one it was one thing that I kind of like took away from this tournament where just like oh, about how I approach making decisions in magic. Mm-hmm. And this this is a little more on the micro level as well, like on the like the small decisions where I, I mentioned I definitely felt like I made a lot of mistakes over the course of this weekend, mm-hmm. just like kind of on that micro level. For example, game three of the finals, I kept a hand that looked pretty strong. I had three lands, hour of promise a three-mana ramp spell, and I think it was, like, a world breaker. I think it was a world so breaker. So that's, like, all of the pieces that you want, right? Yep. You know, three-mana ramp into turn four hour into payoff. Yep. And I'm on the draw, and it feels fast enough, but it's a six-card hand, so I take a scry, and on the top of my library is a land. And just given that context, I think that that decision's close. Yep. Pretty pretty close. I could see keeping it just to make sure because you're gonna need that fourth land to do the curve that you're trying to do. 
Because yep. um, in order to cast your Hour of Promise, you're going to need the fourth land. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're, I'm running 26 lands in the deck, so there is an argument to pushing it and then hopefully drawing into another one, and, but more gas, right? Yep. So I think that that decision was close. And I decided to keep it on top, which I still don't know if it's right or not to do that. But again, that's kind of like one of those decisions that's like very micro, and in order to be an excellent Magic player, you, you got to be able to make those decisions, right? Yeah. But there was another kind of piece missing from that story, which is, and anybody who watched the finals might recognize, is that I didn't have any deserts in my hand. And the land that was on top was just a basic plains. Yep. I think given that context, it's an easy bottom. Because in order to... I'm on the draw against Mardu, which is going to have a pretty fast map, a draw. And I think that I need to be doing something that impacts the board on turn four at the latest. Yeah. So I, I'm going to need that hour promise to give me some zombies. And you think your percentage is just very low if you're not making zombies Right, there. and so, uh, yeah, if I'm not making zombies there, I think that it, it's just too likely that I get run over mm-hmm. by, you know, toolcraft, heart, whatever. Yep. If we're looking at kind of like micro decision mistakes and kind of like trying to take something away from that, whether or not I bottomed there, I think was less of a mistake than my failure to recognize the fact that I needed a desert in order to make this hand work. Yeah. So I think that like the, the decision on whether or not I need a land is less relevant than taking a minute to make sure that you're not missing any larger pieces. Right. I think that the biggest mistake that I made in that decision wasn't whether or not to top or bottom, but failing to even think about all of the possible reasons why I might need to top bottom. Looking beyond, is do I need another land or not? Right. But looking more into, do I need a desert or something like that? Or am I missing any other pieces? Yeah, and the fact that you didn't think about it right. is 100% yeah, a mistake. Yeah, and, and the reality is that I just wasn't even thinking about deserts. Right. <laughs> uh, in, when I made that decision, my decision was, there's a land, do I want another land or not? The decision should have been, is this the right kind of land that I need? Because am I going to need a desert in order to survive this this game? So, right, the yeah, the the mistake, I think, was just like failing to kind of take a step back, reassess everything given the information that I have and trying to think about any re- any like further reason why I'm making the decision that I'm making. Yep. And I definitely feel like I did that a couple of times where I I made a play based on kind of like a little too level one thinking of like, you know, this is normally right, I'm going to do this. Instead of like trying to like take a step back and see if I can focus on any more important factors of the game that I might be missing. And I think that that was kind of like the only example that I remember, but I remember having that thought a couple of times over the course of the tournament where I was like, wow, I made that mistake. And the mistake wasn't me kind of like doing that instead of the other thing. The mistake was actually me just like not taking a moment to think about what I can lose to in this situation. Right. Taking a moment to think about what my opponent could have. Taking a moment to assess why my opponent made the decisions that he made and the, the context that that gives me and, you know, what I can kind of like think about because of that. Like, one of the one of the huge punts that I mentioned earlier in the podcast was I had this game locked up, right? And it's post-board against Teamer, and I'm playing around in the gate that he keeps on holding up mana for because he's terrified of whatever, sweepers, I guess. <laughs> and I just Ulamogged him, and I'm at five, and he had a Bristling Hydra in play, and he had four lands left, and he played a Long Tusk Cub and passed the turn. And he's got, like, seven energy or something. So I'm, I have an Ulamog, and I'm at five, so I need to be able to not die, right? <laughs> and I draw for turn, and the, my Ulamog had found me another Ulamog off of his Sanctum Trigger. Okay. So this game is, like, locked, right? And I draw a Quarantine Field. I'm just like, alright, you know, I can get rid of his one blocker, and then he's got a chump with the other one, because he's taken a hit off of this Ulamog. So it's fine, you know, and I just cast the Quarantine Field. Immediately negated. And yeah, and and I had been thinking about this negate like over the course of the entire game. <laughs> and the mistake, the biggest mistake that I made was just like not taking a second to kind of like ground myself a little bit and be like, all right, what can my opponent have here? 
Do you think you just kind of checked out because you were like, well, this game's over? I did, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I definitely checked out because, uh, you know, and then, so I cast that, and then I didn't have enough mana for my Ulmog. Yep. And then I was just dead uh, on board, right? You know, I can attack and he chumps, and then he attacks me for lethal with one of his creatures. Yeah. Uh, or I don't attack and he just attacks with both. Yeah. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the mistakes. And the mistake that I made, it wasn't like, I'm not even viewing the Ulamog versus Quarantine Field decision as the mistake. The mistake isn't like even beginning to start to think about what my opponent could have right. and how that affects my decision. And that, that mistake is way more yeah. fundamental to to playing the game correctly than, right. than yeah. choosing this, the higher percentage choice. Yeah. Those decisions all feed into the Ulamog versus the other one decision. Right. But I think that as long as you're focusing on the things that matter, what can my opponent have, how can I get punished for doing one or the other, mm -hmm. when you're looking at a close decision between two things, as long as you're looking at all the pieces that go into that decision, I think that your decision almost becomes made for you. Right. Right? Like, what can my opponent have? Oh, negate. Obviously, I've been playing around it all game. Ulamog is the obvious decision. Right. Yeah, I think this has been, you know, this is something that when I had been playing for a while, it, w it wasn't something that had totally keyed in. Uh, you know, it was always, well, make the right decision every turn. Right. But, you know, at one point, and I'm trying to remember, I, I don't remember exactly what the play was because it was years ago, but uh, my friend Adrian Nestico was watching me make a play. I made a play that was a little bit questionable, but I had decided to do it based on what I thought my opponent had. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't end up working out. I think this was back in like Lorwyn standard, so I was playing against fairies and, and probably trying to determine whether he had Mistbind Click or Cryptic, cryptic Commanded. Yeah, one of those impossible decisions. Right, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> my play didn't work out, and I talked to Adrian after, after the game, and I was like, I should have done the other one, I think. And he was like, well but you thought about Cryptic Command, right? And I was like, yeah, but uh, because of this, I didn't think... And he was like, well, as long as you thought about it, right. your decision can't be that wrong. Right, yeah. If you're making the 45 rather than the, you know, the 48% decision, thinking about it is the first step. You know, like with playing Valakut, like I had to run out Obstinate Baloth, I was 90% sure he had Skullcrack up. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't play Obstinate Baloth that turn, I was never going to win the game. Right, but yeah. Thought about it knew it was going to happen, but you think about it, and that's that's good enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth kind of, like, taking a step back and thinking about those decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the other takeaways for for me this tournament. Things things that I know that I have a tangible control over moving forward. You know, there are tons of things that you just have no control over in Magic, and those things kind of just, like, aren't worth even thinking about. Where, But the things that you can think about is, like, you know, these kind of decisions and, and you know, allowing yourself the, the best opportunity to work with what you have, so. And that definitely translates over to, you know, across formats and, and for the yes. rest of your Magic career. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, definitely um, definitely feel like I, I learned a lot from this tournament, which I, I'm kind of more excited about than anything else. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Well, especially since it also qualified you for the Pro Tour, right? so. Yeah. <laughs> if you got a, you know, if you're going to learn something, and you got a great place to apply it now. Right, yeah. You know, I, I'm very excited for the Pro Tour. You know, I always felt like I played, and I think that this might be true for kind of everybody, is that, like, I feel like I play up a little bit. When I'm playing against somebody who I know is, like, a very strong Magic player, I give myself the opportunity to sit back and think about those decisions because I want to make the right decision because I know I'm playing against a good player. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm definitely excited to kind of like put myself in the atmosphere of the Pro Tour and play against the best players in the world. And uh, I think that that's going to give me kind of the fuel and the incentive to play the best I can and make those decisions the best I can. Yeah, yeah, I think you'll have fun. And I think yeah. you got a great shot. So oh, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and so, speaking of carrying forward, we're going to have a new format pretty soon. We keep seeing more Ixon spoilers, so I think we should probably talk about some. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe we start with the obvious one, and then we kind of, like, <laughs> alternate one at a time. Like, you say something you're excited about, we'll talk about it, and I'll, I'll say something I'm excited about. Sure. But I think the very obvious one is that Lightning Strike just got spoiled. Yes. Got two mana, three damage to anything, instant speed. Yes. It's, Thank God. That card, for me, is kind of always been one of those, like, format-defining cards of, like, I just remember 
like Lightning Strike back in like the Rabblemaster era. Like yeah. that's kind of like when I started to play Magic a little bit was when you know Lightning Strike was around and it just was like the card that every red player was so excited to be able to play because it dealt with so much and that was kind of like format dependent a little bit just because all of like the relevant creatures were all around that size. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's you know I'm definitely excited to have that tool back in standard. Uh, I like playing red as much as the next guy. You know? <laughs> uh, I think that I, I like learned how to play magic like with a red deck or whatever. Like people would hand me like a burn deck or something and they'd say like, "All right, Collins, go play." <laughs> yeah, it, it's painful, and and we're probably still going to be running a braids in the red deck. But it is mm-hmm. really painful to get your opponent down to five or so and look at your hand. You've got a shock and a braid in your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely not exactly what you want. Uh, yeah. So lightning strikes exciting. There's the new Boros Planeswalker, kind of like the dinosaur dude, or chick. How do you pronounce this name? Yeah. I'm not sure. Quatley. Um, Quatley? Yeah. That sounds kind of dinosaur-y. Yeah. Um, totally, totally dinosaur-y. Warrior Poet. My initial reaction to this card is that it's not very good. So this um, is five mana for three loyalty Planeswalker. Uh, plus two, you gain life equals to the greatest power among creatures you control. Mm-hmm. Zero, create a 3-3 three, three dinosaur creature token with trample. And minus X deals X damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures. Creatures dealt damage this way can't block this turn. Yeah, my, my initial reaction was that the this card just doesn't do enough. Five mana for a three loyalty walker with a 3-3 three, three yeah. is kind of like how I envision this coming down most of the time. And it just doesn't feel like that really does enough. And the plus two just feels really kind of, like, underwhelming of, like, you know, you're, you're not generating any card advantage with this. Like, that's kind of, like, where you want your, like, kind of, like, the, the default for, all, like, all of the best Planeswalkers that we've seen is, like, plus some kind of advantage mm-hmm. minus some kind of way to protect itself yeah. and then ultimate win the game. Yep. Like, that's kind of, like, the cookie-cutter, like, good Planeswalker, right? Sure. But this plus... Doesn't really gain any advantage other than, you know, your life total increasing a little bit if you already have a board's presence. Mm-hmm. The zero is like 3-3 three, three that, mm, you know, we'll see how, like how big the format is, but right. I don't know how big a 3-3 three, three is going to be in this format. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, I, I agree that it doesn't read that well mm-hmm. on first look. I think we might be a little surprised. I, I think... Incidental life gain overperforms on cards that are giving you value otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very easy for this to be giving you four life when it comes down and later in the game when you're like right on the edge, maybe mm-hmm. even, you know, when you need one more turn to kill your mono red opponent, then it comes down and gives you five or six life and, and right. you know, really puts it out of reach. Yeah. Just that. Yeah, this is kind of the perfect card against mono red. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, five mana loyalty walker that gives you life. Five mana, five loyalty walker that comes down and gives you some life, or yep. makes a blocker, like against the red decks is pretty good, or like kills a bunch of X ones. Right, you want. right, right. I was actually talking to Brendan DeCandio over the course of the weekend, and he said that he thinks that this card just plays better than it looks. Yeah, and he's actually kind of excited about it. I I think that might be, you know, it looks really medium, but when it comes down in a game, you'll realize that your cards don't really match up that well against it, and right, just, yeah. Um, right, so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely willing to be proven wrong on this one, where maybe it's just, you know, plays much better than it looks, and yep. it's, you know, uh, I've definitely been very, very wrong on Planeswalkers before. They're hard, man. Uh, <laughs> Liliana of the Last Hope, I thought was unplayable garbage, <laughs> but, uh, I've played it in modern events, so, you know. And, and I think, man, she, like... Looks like she slots pretty well into a dinosaur deck. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, that's the design. But, you know, going with the Enrage guys, you know, like this Ripjaw Raptor, this 4-mana, four 4-5, four, whenever it's dealt damage, draw a card. Works really well with both her plus 2. You know, she comes down the turn after it, and you gain 4 life. If you don't want the 3-3 three, three right then, if you'd rather have some life, um, her minus can draw you cards with it. I, I also just kind of like this guy as a weird threat. You know, depending on the removal and the format, if we're really heavy on damage-based removal, he's great against it. He's great at fighting stuff. Uh, you can cycle your own red removal on him in the matchups where that's that's a thing you want to do. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about that guy. I yeah. think that he's gonna see some some pretty sweet like synergistic play in either like a red deck or maybe a deck with walking ballista. You know, right? Uh, does that rotate out? I'm not entirely sure. No, but... walking ballista is Kaladesh. Uh, right. Any artifact. 
default to, it's probably it's not rotating. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. So yeah, I mean, you know, that with walking ballista, you're drawing a bunch of cards, yep. <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, you know, then you kind of like four mana draw a card isn't really what you want in in standard, but you know, that's just like a really powerful late game yeah tool. You know, especially if you have like a four five on the board. I'm assuming that means you're not dying too quickly. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think the tools are looking to be there for a dinosaur deck. I mean, this guy's probably just good regardless, but right. there, like, there's a Naya Dinosaurs theme deck that seems to exist and has a lot of tools. Like this this one drop, a Priest of the Awakening Sun, one mana, one one. Uh, for a white, at the beginning of your upkeep, you may reveal a dinosaur from your hand. If you do, you gain two life, mm-hmm. and then has some sacrifice ability that lets you search for a dinosaur, right. which you know makes you you can turn it into a card late game. But early game against if you play this turn one against Mono Red, Mono Red is really unhappy with how this game is going. On. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I'm hey, I'm just as excited about Niasaurus Rex as the next person. Yeah. <laughs> as long as it's called that, then then we're. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a mana guy. Right. I don't know. Lots of tools. Yeah, the mana guy that com- becomes a three three might just be you know pretty sweet. I I don't know. All these dinosaur synergies feel on the surface to me just like a little too like win more i don't know Mm -hmm. it just feels weird like you know all these things are like dependent on you like having dinosaurs in play right in order to get their advantage and i would imagine that if you've got dinosaurs in play you're doing all right right yeah it's tough to keep a four or five mana guy in play without right it just meaning your way ahead so i am i am worried that that this is kind of going to be a little too win more and not really where you want to be but, you know, at the same time, this is kind of design space that we haven't really entered into too much beforehand. So, who knows, you know? And, um, and there's room in standard for a, like, a monster's deck. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. And for sure. this, this is, I mean, if we're going to get one, it's probably going to be this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I, I think that I give Wizards enough credit to be able to design, like, a good monster-y archetype that could potentially exist you if know it's not and who least... knows who knows if it'll be a standard deck until like rivals where right. we get even more cards to play with but yeah i mean i'd be very surprised if some like dinosaur tribal deck existed like immediately after just one set but you know i, I you know i wouldn't be surprised if a few of these dinosaurs are very good and see play in the monster style strategy yeah yeah so can we talk about old growth dryads for a second Old growth dryads. So this card, yeah, is, that's is, kind of like the the hot topic lately. Yeah, I'm definitely on the this card is completely unplayable side of things. Um, I agree. Okay, um, good. Yeah, I don't think a three three for one is good enough to justify. I mean, I don't know. You can talk about it in any context that you can. I've heard people say time walk your opponent or ramp your opponent or just like put them a turn ahead. I think that if you're on the draw and you play this on turn one. You're dead. Your, your opponent's on three mana next turn. Yeah. Like, and, you know, who knows what they can do with that, right? <laughs> so. They can certainly remove your 3-3 three, three with that. Yes, right. Or or at least play something that makes your 3-3 three, three just, like, not effective anymore. Yep. Like, 3-3s, three, or, like, the whole premise of being a one mana 3-3 three, three is that you're playing it in a turn early enough where your opponent's not going to be able to catch up. Yeah. Right, that's just like, you know, magic theory a little bit, where... They can't kill it for one mana, they would right. have to spend two, on, yeah, two plus right. on it. There's, you know, we only have shock, we don't have bolt, so, you know, you're gonna have to spend two mana to kill the 3-3, three, three, or spend two to three mana on, like, a creature that brawls with the 3-3, three, three. but this just kind of built in is allowing your opponent to do that with yep. no cost. Yep. So... Plus, yeah. we have Fatal Push in the format, too, so... Yeah, oh, jeez. Yeah, I didn't even think about that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I just don't think that's playable. Yeah, um, I, like, like imagine how broken a card that was zero mana, rampant growth, your opponent gets a 3-3 token. That card's deal. unprintable. Deal. So and it costs your opponent a mana to cast and yeah, a card? and a card. Like, there's, like the, the guy getting the creature is getting the card. Right, like, yeah. Like, that's like, a, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, I think. I, I think if you're putting this card in your deck, you will be very unhappy like the first time you play it. <laughs> yes. Maybe this is playable in an eternal format where nobody runs basics. Yep. Like Legacy, for example. But I mean, um, like, you can't play Wild Nakatl in a Legacy. But, yeah, it's probably, you know, 
we've got Delvers. Delvers flip pretty consistently, right? You know, and it flies, it so flies. it doesn't get. And your this isn't like hand. hexproof or anything, so yeah, I just you know I, don't, I can't really see it. Right. If they did something like give it hexproof, like like make it be a weird presence on the board that a certain specific deck would have a hard time with, then I could see it being a thing. Mm-hmm. But just being a a trained Armadon is not right. Is not good enough. Yeah, three threes are barely relevant in, in standard, so. Right, yeah, I, I just don't think that's what standard's about right now. But yeah, so I guess that's just my thoughts on the on that card. I, yeah. I don't think it's playable. I, I don't think so either. What, do you, do you, anything you're actually excited about, though? I don't know, so far in the spoilers, I think that I've seen just like a bunch of pretty reasonable cards. I'm excited about Lightning Strike, I think that would be kind of like my answer, I guess. Okay. Um... There's a there's the five five dinosaur that comes down and makes a three three haste. Yeah, right? I don't. I'm not sure if that's completely confirmed yet. I think it that might be somebody looking at right. the sheet still. But if that exists, okay. yeah, then that card is definitely good. But then it might not be true because there is this five five dinosaur that, when it comes down, deals one damage to each other creature. Yeah, and that's kind of like either. in the slot that I would expect the other card to have been in. Right. Um, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure. There's one card that uh, I think is hilarious and <laughs> impossible to figure out if it's good or not, which is Rowdy Crew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Rowdy Crew. It's a four mana three three trample. When it comes to play, you draw three and then discard two at random. Uh, and if the two cards that were discarded share a card type then you get two plus one plus one counters on it so it becomes a five five trample and we did talk about this a little before yeah uh but right so uh, i guess i'm excited to see how playable that yeah. card is <laughs> if, yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense right just because um, it's yeah that is just a very confusing it's hilarious. card and it, i i like i would never play that in like a week one format or something but you know somebody could just like do the math and figure out that it's just great on average <laughs> Which is kind of like what you have to do for the the little more random element cards, right? Um, so you just like have to assume that they'll you'll be averaging out over the course of the time. But yeah, the kind of awkward thing is like you know you calculate out okay, well when it's a five five like it dodges all this removal, but when it's a three three like it no longer dodges any of that removal that you were getting right, missed yeah. by anymore. And you can you can just respond to the trigger and lightning strike it. Oh yeah, that's a it, you, you're totally right. So so yikes. Yeah. So yikes. Wouldn't want that to happen. Yep. Yep. Even though you are kind of going up a card, like getting your four drop lightning striked, is uh, not not good. Yeah. Right. There's a um, four mana doomfall or hero's downfall. Sorry, is what I'm trying to say. Right. That it's an instant speed exile target creature planeswalker. You gain two life. Right. That Cross might see some cyber play, maybe, depending on like what the format looks like. It's going to be a very format-dependent card, I think. Yeah. Is it like if there are a bunch of like planeswalkers and big creatures or something, then some black decks will want to sideboard that, maybe? Yeah. Um, if your opponent is ramping into dinosaurs and planeswalkers, then that right. seems like an okay card to yeah. be running. But, uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, definitely Lightning Strike is the card that I'm most excited about. It kind of like brings me back a little bit to <laughs> uh, me learning how to play Magic. And I just remember there was, like, one specific sequence that kind of, like, made me realize that, like, how bad at magic I was, I guess. <laughs> it was just, like, kind of one of those moments where it was in the Rabble Master era. Right. So everybody's playing Rabble Masters and Lightning Strikes in their deck. Mm-hmm. And I played Rabble Master Mirror against somebody at, like, a, you know, maybe, like, an IQ or something. Like, you know, smallish local tournament. And my opponent was on the play... And I have a Rabble Master and a Lightning Strike in my hand, and I'm just so excited. And I go, you know, he goes second land go, and I go second land go, and I'm so excited to be able to Lightning Strike his Rabble Master. <laughs> and then he goes third mana go, and I'm like, nice. He doesn't have a Rabble Master. Uh-huh. And I go third mana Rabble Master. And he goes, and he Lightning Strikes it, <laughs> untaps Rabble Master, hits you with a one one. And I was just like. Wow, I just got savagely outplayed. Like, of course he had both in his hand, but of course he's not playing his Rabble Master into a potential lightning strike. Right. I know that now as a Magic player, but, you know, that was definitely one of those, like, learning moments of me that I associate with both the card Lightning Strike and Rabble Master. So kind of, like, seeing this is kind of like a throwback to me for a little bit of, like, 
you know, this was, I learned something that day. Yeah, I, I feel like if you're in a video game, like, you just get, like, light shining down as you, like, level up one. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Gotta get those animations in. Ah, like, oh, level up. Yes. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Learn the concept in magic. <laughs> the best. You know, and I'm still, you know, I, I still feel like I, I can have those moments every once in a while, so. Yeah. That's kind of why I love this game, is that there's just, like, so many things like that that you can stumble across. Cool. Lightning Strike. Uh, it's home a little bit for me, so I'm excited. Well, hopefully, you know, lots of people will learn exactly that lesson. Right. You know, yeah. I guess we don't have Ravel Master, but we'll, yeah. we'll have something. Yeah, I think it was important that it was like a Ravel Master style effect, because it's a card that like... Takes over. Gets value immediately, unless your opponent can interact with it immediately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it taught a lot of people lessons about how the beginning of combat worked, uh, that you needed to be able to like have your answer ready for it. So, yeah. Um, well, you know, maybe something like Hotly will teach people that lesson because you can't just run your Hotly out. You know, you you've at least got a pluser if if you think your opponent has lightning strike because we've got an instant speed face burn spell now. So right, yeah. Um, Hotly into you know lightning strike is going to be pretty bad if you're just making a three three. Yep. You know, you still get your three three in this case. Right. Um, true. True. Which true, I guess true. isn't the worst, but yeah, losing your planeswalker is not great. So yeah, I guess that's kind of another knock on Watley a little bit is that you know one of the one of the cards that I expect to see a lot of play is going to be lightning strike and when your planeswalker just dies to it not, ideal. not where you want to be no definitely yeah. not oh well <laughs> yeah I mean that is kind of a strike against Watley overall just she is a lot less I mean true for all planeswalkers but especially for her she's a lot less good right if you don't have a guy in play already yeah, yeah. and just kind of like looking around at the I'm on the I'm currently on the Mythic Spoiler website and mm-hmm. I'm just looking at all of the the golden uncom rares and uncommons. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm just kind of like looking at the power and toughness and a lot of these four mana guys are all three toughness. And only the five mana and above guys or there is actually a five mana three three <laughs> human pirate. Oh, but he gets plus one plus one for each artifact you control, so he's not really a three three. But yeah, just so I think that like three is gonna be one of those toughness levels that's like not going to go up too far until like a certain mana cost which i think is an indication maybe that lightning strike is going to be good yeah so and i wonder i mean if people are playing a lot of creatures with three toughness the ability to pump out three threes then becomes pretty decent if it's going to trade against a lot of their guys true for sure but you know the more lightning strikes he's played the less good she is so right but that's i guess that's you know it's hard to look at things like that and from a constructed standpoint. Yeah. I think that's something that you can definitely look at a lot for like limited and stuff like that. Right. Cause just because you have all of the information there and hard to parse through everything for... True. Well, Lightning Strike is an uncommon anyways, which I, I don't know how relevant that... I don't know how much we learn about the limited, you know, like toughness threshold from these. Sure, uncommons. sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely fair. For sure. That that pirate guy does remind me, though. You know, it gets plus one, plus one for each artifact you control. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think I'm going to want to be on the lookout for with spoilers and Bruin and stuff is that treasures are artifacts that count for stuff in Kaladesh that like artifacts. Yes. Um, you know, right. you can improvise off of treasures without having to sacrifice them. You can pump your uh, toolcraft exemplar or turn on your inventor's apprentice and that sort of thing. Probably more applicable to the non-one-drop things that, that want you to have artifacts in play, but that may be a synergy that opens up some stuff that we haven't really had access to. Yeah, definitely, you know, something to keep an eye on when, like, two sets have, like, a focus that kind of, like, work well together. Yep. Like, you know, all these treasures can be tapped to improvise. Maybe there's, like, something to look for there in a constructed deck, for sure. Well, you're definitely going to... Be looking hard at unlicensed disintegration if you got a black red pirates deck. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, black red pirates aggro. All right, I'm playing week one. <laughs> yeah, I I think hard you could cure? do a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, I think you could do a lot worse than making sure that unlicensed disintegration is a good card in your deck week one. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Mardu's losing a few pieces, Gideon, things like that. So yeah. it'll be interesting to kind of see the next. Hardy Currents is one of those cards that's too good not to see play in some archetype. Yep. So I think that, you know, maybe some Pirates format will pick up the reins on that. Yeah, a lot of these Pirates seem to have three power 
could definitely do it. Uh, and, and as I mentioned on our last episode, like I'm pretty excited to try it out in a shell with three mana Jace and three mana Gideon. I, I think it's very good with both of those and could do some work. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, that's all I got for today. Just, again, super happy for your <laughs> finals appearance. I'm, I'm, like, I'm very proud of you, and I can't wait to see what you do with it. Yeah, definitely excited to finally get to take home a piece of hardware. I got I got my little uh, finalist plaque over there. Yeah, right next to the uh, mic. Not making a lot of noise, but, <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. there. Yeah, it feels good. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll take that where, where I can. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, you know, keep up with us. Twitter is at MTG underscore Grindcast. You can find Collins. Yep, at Collins Mullen. Easiest, easiest username to find as long as you know my name. Which is <laughs> specifically Collins Mullen, not Colin Mullins. So. Yes, common mistake, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Collins Mullen. That's me. Great. Um, see you guys next time. All right, peace. Peace.